Roxy, I'm going to start today with an easy question. I can sense the sarcasm dripping from that. Oh, no. Just totally easy, breezy. You know me. All right. All right. Hit me. Why are you still a Christian again? Let me just point you to season one, episode two of this podcast entitled, Why Are You Still a Christian? (laughs) Might be a good place to start. In short, I guess I would say I've always been drawn to the spiritual side of life, and I have never tired of Jesus or his teachings. It's a good answer. A big part of why I'm still a Christian is that I know people who say they are Christians who actually act like Christians. They really act like little Christs. Almost as if that's the whole point. Don't talk the talk if you can't walk the walk. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women stretching our faith in the big, bad town of New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, It was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We noticed a lot of chatter recently about the topic of deconstruction. It is the issue du jour on many social media channels these days. From sex abuse and misogyny to racism and church leaders behaving badly, it does seem like the church is facing a bit of a crisis, and that is driving many people out of the church. Part of why this conversation is hard and often misunderstood is that the word deconstruction describes many different paths. Some people really are leaving the faith altogether, while others are still down with Jesus, but don't want anything to do with his followers. Right. And even 10 or 20 years ago, what we're calling deconstruction now might simply have been called doubt which has always been part and parcel of the life of faith. Or as we called it in those college coffee shops, an existential faith crisis. Or as the mystics called it, a dark night of the soul. We've talked a lot about our relationship with evangelicalism and how that movement that we grew up in has more recently broken our hearts. But would you say before even that, that you had deconstructed in any way? Yeah, I can't blame Trump for all my issues (laughs) with Christianity. I mentioned earlier in this season in our great conversation with Kyle James Howard about church hurt. At the end of college, I basically had a mental health crisis where just extreme anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what it was. I, I didn't understand what was happening on a psychological level. So I spiritualized all of it. That is not particularly helpful. But thankfully, I was able to find kind of the right medication and get stabilized and eventually study abroad for a semester in Oxford, England, which was, you know, it's a beautiful city. I was there with other Christian college students. Nice. I think of it as my agnostic phase, Mm. like not just, oh, I'm having doubts about a specific issue of faith or a specific part of the Bible. It's like, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I'm pretty sure I still believe in God, but I 
can't get a grasp on kind of basic Christian belief. Mm-hmm. Some of that was I was being challenged intellectually in my courses and being exposed to ideas about science and origins and right. the Bible and recent history that was pretty disorienting. It was also the first time that, you know, even though I was in this program with other Christian college students, like almost everybody else we were going to school with was not a Christian. And not only were they not Christians, but they didn't really seem that bothered by it. Like I think growing up, there was this idea that, you know, people who aren't Christians are really unhappy because they have a God-shaped hole in their hearts. Right, right. They're always going to seem very discontent And we know the answer to their discontentment. Definitely. And from what I could tell, there were a lot of my peers for whom they didn't seem to have a God-shaped hole. (laughs) Like, they were pretty darn content being Mm -hmm. agnostic or atheist. You know, I couldn't, the argument that, like, they were inherently unhappy just didn't seem true. Mm Mm-hmm. I really couldn't get a hold on a secure faith. I remember telling people in my program, like, I think I'm, I think I'm, I think this is my time for being an agnostic. (laughs) And I will say too, like, I didn't want to be in that place. Right. There was not a conscious choice on my part to leave the faith or like dabble in the dark ideas. Right. It was trying to integrate things that I was learning with things that I had believed in the past and having to grow up in a way that I hadn't expected. I didn't want to lose faith. It just is where I ended up. And it actually really scared me. How did you get out of it? You called it a phase, an agnostic phase, indicating an end point. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then, like, I also went on to work at Christianity Today, so, like, hopefully I'd figured it out before then. Um, there were a lot of intellectual loose ends that were not tied up for me. But Mm -hmm. then in the meantime, I met people who just seemed like actual Christians. Mm -hmm. Those little Christs. Yeah. And the way that they lived and loved other people, I couldn't deny that Mm -hmm. it was genuine. And then I think I, some of the intellectual questions, like the more that I read and more that I got introduced to good ideas... Some of those were tied up. And then there was also an element, though, of realizing, like, maybe I don't need to have all the intellectual questions tied up. Right. Like, maybe there's a way of still practicing faith while accepting that there's a lot of mystery and unknown baked into faith itself. And that can be woven into faith practice, not like a problem or a threat. Right. You know, I think my early adulthood... um, maybe like halfway through college and then into my early mid twenties was a lot of maybe deconstructing God or my belief in God and Christianity, or maybe more so that was more of a doubting of my faith where I was looking more at, is this really real? I would go to sleep with like panic attacks being like, "Ah, I don't actually think any of this is real. And I think when I die, I'm just going to die and that'll be it. And there is Mm -hmm. nothing bigger than this. And um, I just believe in a weird like Bronze Age story that (laughs) everyone (laughs) should have moved on from by now or whatever. Like, was it Bronze Age? I I admit I'm not parts of the Old Testament. (laughs) I'm not super read up on my (laughs) ages. 
But is this just a story from a really long time exactly, ago exactly. that yeah. has, yes. So I had a lot of those doubts and intellectual doubts, you know, um, and, mm-hmm. and yet was still feeling like spiritual connections. And eventually, like, I do feel like I came to a place of at least peace with those tensions now or in the past, like, five to seven years, it's been much more about this deconstruction of the religion built up around Christianity and the institutions within Mm -hmm. it. And I don't, again, Mm -hmm. I don't just mean because of like the politics of the last five or six years. You know, I think one of the, like a big one for me, and I'm not going to get this exactly right because I don't have the book in front of me, but it was um, a book about sort of the scandalous women in the Bible and how they'd been read Vindicating the Vixens from Sandra Glan. Vindicating the Vixens, revisiting sexualized, vilified, and marginalized women of the Bible. Yes. So this was an example of a small moment, but a real moment of like what mm. the ways that I began to start deconstructing what the church, the religious institutions had offered to me. And one of those was in the chapter on Deborah in that book. And there was a word that had been translated a certain way. She was a judge. And there's a verse that's used all the time that talks about how because this one leader of Israel would not step up, essentially, a man would not step up, that a woman instead had to essentially do his job as the leader of the army. And again, I'm not going to remember what the exact word is, but it was translated in such a way to make that seem shameful. And mm. this book was pointing out that like that was not a very accurate translation and that a better way to do it, it was essentially a celebration of what Deborah did, not just because a man had not done his duty. And so a woman had to do it. And I know that seems so small and it is, but it was like there were so many ways that I was taught as a kid and as an adult in evangelical churches about like a man's duty, a woman's duty, that a woman would only do these things if a man failed to do them. Like that became huge teachings that were drawn from a verse that was mistranslated. And that particular instance, along with others related to Bible translation, like really threw me because I started to think like, how can I trust any of this? Mm-hmm. And these ideas that, like, the Bible is objectively, literally true, written by God. And then you're like, okay, but it's been translated by a bunch of men through a bunch of centuries in a bunch of corrupt time periods. And, you know, through colonialization, through all of, through white supremacy, through racism, like, translated in ways meant to essentially valorize the work of the white patriarchal project. And I was like... Mm-hmm. I had never known that or realized that or felt how deep it was until it was like revealed to me that it's like baked into the language of the Bibles that I was reading. Mm -hmm. How do I find what's real, what's true in this religion that has been only handed down to me through fallible people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you've really encapsulated what a lot of people who are deconstructing right now are wrestling with. It's essentially coming to terms with the ways that human structures of power have often driven what is presented as Christian truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think a big part of why books like Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay, The Color of Compromise by Jamar mm-hmm. Tisby, and The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr 
have taken off is because they're helping to disentangle the cultural trappings from like revealed divine truth. And if you have grown up in church communities that have entangled the two and have collapsed the two, you have spoiler alert, you have grown up in those communities, (laughs) right? Or you've, you've never considered the cultural, institutional, and power dimensions of mm-hmm. Christian faith, or really of of a lot of religious traditions. And those three are taking a lot of flack for that. Well, they are, but they're also really hitting yes. a nerve, and their books have sold very well. Yes. Because there's, and I think the people who are most critical of those works and similar works are the ones who arguably have the most to lose. Right from a kind of revealing of certain power structures baked into the church, right? right? Exactly. Like there's a, I mean, this, this sounds so cynical and of course not all pastors are like this, but there are church leaders who have a vested interest in not examining mm-hmm. the ways that white patriarchal power structures are baked into the church because they directly benefit from them. Like yes. they want you to just keep trusting in their authority and books like those and your own experience of looking into how translations of the Bible have been mishandled and come with patriarchal lenses lead a lot of people to ask, like, well, if you weren't truthful about this, mm-hmm. maybe you weren't truthful about other portions of the Bible or yeah. other arguably like very core elements of Christian teaching. Yes. Yeah. And this is, this can be painful. These are foundations we've built our lives on and around. Mm-hmm. Anytime someone has like a core truth shaken or discovers that like someone they really trusted lied, mm-hmm. that really rocks you. And it really makes you start to question, again, so many things. And then when you start to question them and you run into hostility toward those questions and defensiveness around those mm-hmm. questions, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's it's throw their hands up, like, let's leave. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm being manipulated into or gaslit into a kind of theology that isn't a capital T truth, isn't actually what God is asking of us or wants of us. Um, And I think this, Mm -hmm. it's scary for both people. Of course, it's scary for pastors and spiritual leaders who, whose literal job you know, as they've been told it is, is to provide answers, spiritual answers, you Mm -hmm. know, answers about Mm -hmm. why we all exist and what it all means. And, Mm -hmm. and then when people are coming and questioning that and saying, you know, maybe you don't have it right. Like that's really scary for pastors and leaders, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And it's also scary for the people who are like, okay, if I'm scrapping this and I'm scrapping this and this is gone and this is gone, you know, there's this idea that like the truth, the truth sets you free. It's liberating. Mm -hmm. But we've all seen those like animals let out of a cage where they just like shrink further back in or like they go out and they're scared of the big wide expanse. You know, it's like Mm. it's scary sometimes to be let free because those boundaries felt like safety and suddenly there are no boundaries and it's hard to feel stable or secure. And at least for me, it seems like regularly on a daily or weekly basis, like there's another thing that 
comes up to scrutinize. There's another, you know, there's another aspect of church culture, another, you know, another way of thinking about race in America or thinking about how Christianity has impacted indigenous communities or thinking about, you know, it it goes on and on and on. And like, it's frightening to sort of have these revelations on a constant basis. You know, I mean, you know, there have been lots of takes from pastors over the past couple years about why people are leaving the church, why people are deconstructing. And more often they seem accusatory Mm -hmm. or there's an accusatory element like people are doing this because they want to sin or people are doing this because they took the easy path or people are doing this because they want to fulfill their fleshly desires and it's like they want to feel maybe popular or cool it's the trendy thing to deconstruct (laughs) I'm sure these pastors would say look I talk to people who are deconstructing and this is what they've told me but I think as a general rule (laughs) if there is a significant segment of people who are deconstructing who are really hurting Mm -hmm. and some of the hurt lies with church leaders Mm -hmm. and how they've handled or mishandled the Bible or structures of power or treated people on the margins, the default posture should be, help me understand your experience and how can I make this right? Like listening and taking ownership, like taking responsibility because as a pastor, you don't get to just presume that people will grant you authority without also really taking seriously the responsibility that comes with that authority. Right. (laughs) It seems like this that made me wonder what people who are deconstructing wanted their pastors or former pastors to understand about that messy and oftentimes painful experience. I feel a Twitter poll coming on. Yes. I recently took to Twitter to ask, what is one thing you want your pastor or former pastor to know about deconstruction? And there were dozens of answers. Yeah, you got a lot of responses. Yes, it hit a nerve. So we can't share all of the answers that I got from this poll, but there were some definite themes that stood out to us. Lots of people said that leaving the church for them has not meant leaving Jesus. For example, here's One response, many of us are deconstructing evangelicalism, not Jesus-centered Christianity, because there is a huge ass difference. I hope we're allowed to say ass. I think so. It's in the Bible. Another prominent theme that came up is that a lot of people noted that this deconstruction was rooted in the church's lack of moral credibility. Anthony wrote, I don't think as a church we have yet come to grips with the fact that people are deconstructing, not because they are attracted to vice, but because they are attracted to virtue and the people we keep offering as role models just don't have them. Mm. Another responder, Joanna, says deep pain and disappointment with church culture and leadership drive many to question traditional approaches to Christian life. It's not leaving Jesus, but examining the people or structures that cause such pain. And a lot of people really want their pastors to know that it does not feel like a choice. Noah said, I didn't go looking for it, that I wasn't hoping to find ways to sin, quote unquote, more, but that the questions wouldn't stop and the answers offered no longer satisfied me at all. I had to look elsewhere. And Karen told us so many, perhaps most of us never wanted to deconstruct or deconvert in the first place. Finally, a lot of people noted that 
the work of deconstruction can actually be the work of finding a deeper faith, not losing it entirely. One responder said, Dear Pastor, 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine ourselves and test ourselves in order to work out a purer faith. Please respect us when we are doing just that. I feel that it is this idea of like working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And our guest today is a bit of an OG in this department. He knows from personal experience that doubt and deconstruction can be the path to a deeper faith. If you have power without love, well, that's kind of where we are now in the United States, you know. If you have love without power, you don't affect much change. You're just a nice guy, but you're not changing much. You really need that sound mind. And I think that's where evangelicals have fallen. Philip Yancey is the author of multiple best-selling books, including What's So Amazing About Grace, The Jesus I Never Knew, and his brand new memoir, Where the Light Fell. Our conversation with Philip is coming right up after we give a shout out to our patrons who make this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. If you like what we're doing at Save by the City, one of the best ways to support us is by donating to Religion News Service. RNS is a nonprofit newsroom and relies on reader support. Right now, you can donate through Newsmatch at religionnews.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You know what else to do? Shoot us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're honored to be joined today by Philip Biancy, author of several books, including the new memoir, Where the Light Fell. Thanks so much for joining us, Philip. It's my pleasure, Caitlin. Welcome. And you too, Roxy. <laughs> Thank you. So, Philip, there's been a lot of buzz about your new memoir, and we know that there are some harder parts of your family's story that you decided to include in this new book. So... How did you decide what to include? How did you go about telling the hard truth about your family story? It ended up being more a question of what to exclude because <laughs> I, I had never written a memoir. And so I just started writing about everything that I could remember. And it ended up being 240,000 words, which would oh, be wow. <laughs> like a 1,500-page book or something. And I realized nobody wants to read 240,000 words about me. So I've got to cut, cut, cut. But the story ended up focusing on my family, which is a small family, just a mother who was a widow. My father died when I was a year old and my brother and the church environment. So dysfunctional family, dysfunctional church was the focus. I've waited a long time to tell some of these stories. I'm 72 years old and I began to see my story for all of its oddness and in some case wounds as, as a gift. It was mm. a gift that came at this particular time where I thought some of the issues I dealt with growing up were gone. And then mm -hmm. I discovered, no, they're not. Right. And so I can 
I can speak to things going on today with a perspective of history. People who are identified as ex-evangelicals will tell me, I, I was wounded by the church. And I say, well, tell me your story. And they do. And I kind of lean back and say, oh, it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian writer. Well, I am. But there, there can be redemption on the other side. And so that's why I see it as a gift. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we were really wanting to talk to you because this has been, you know, a time of a lot of people kind of going through that process as you're sort of thinking about your story as a gift for people who have gone through this process. What are some of those like really hard earned lessons for you are, especially in terms of what we might call deconstructing your faith these days? Well, I wouldn't have known that phrase back in the 1960s or what when I was coming of age, which is a very popular phrase now, but I, I think I did something along that line. Yes. <laughs> I grew up in a completely religion, faith-saturated environment. My mother was a Bible club teacher, and so I heard the same Bible stories Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, learned them all, and then I ended up going to a Bible college. And in high school years, I lived in a, in a trailer on church property. I could never get away from it. And when you're a kid, you just assume that the adults know what they're talking about and you believe whatever they say. And so I absorbed that real narrow, fundamentalist, toxic, racist religion. Actually, the racism was a, was a real key in first having me deconstruct my faith because mm -hmm. I tell the story of working at the Center for Disease Control I got a summer fellowship when I was in high school. I knew my, my boss was a brilliant PhD from an Ivy League school who was a specialist in biochemistry. And I studied up, I wanted to impress him. And I walked into, the, uh, into his office and he was a black man. Well, my church had taught this curse of Cain theory, this mm -hmm. abominable theory that, that said that uh, black races are meant to serve the white races. And they could never be a CEO or a president or something like that. And I realized my church had lied to me. They were completely wrong. That same church wow. would forbid any people of color from coming to the church. Talk about Christian nationalism. It was, it was racist to the core. And so that began a process where I doubted everything. If they yeah. lied to me about race, yeah. maybe they lied to me about Jesus, maybe the Bible. And my faith was in suspension for four or five years there when I was just trying to survive to get out so I could be free enough to think it through for myself. My brother went a different route. This was the 60s and you couldn't tell him what to do. So he dropped out of school his final semester from Wheaton College, brilliant musician, became one of Atlanta's first hippies, used a lot of drugs and made a lot of self-destructive choices over the years. So I, I had his example, I knew I could go that route, but I, I could see that wasn't a healthy route. So I just kind of suspended things until I could figure it out. And then fairly soon I, I did hook up with some very healthy people. And when I moved to Chicago and I started working with Dr. Paul Brand, who is a very wise scientist and Christian human humanistic physician who coached me, mentored me. and truly became the father I never had. You talked about, you know, you and your brother ending up on different routes coming out of 
a toxic fundamentalist racist church community. And I think part of the conversation right now about deconstruction, there's a fear (laughs) that if you start to unravel, if you start to question, you could end up like Philip Yancey's brother, <laughs> to put it, you, you, you could you could end up on the wrong path, or you could leave the faith entirely. Why do you think it's important to do that work of reexamination, questioning, even if it leads somewhere outside a kind of traditional faith spectrum? In my experience, it's not so much a conscious choice that people make. Oh, I think I'll take that step. It's it's. Mm-hmm actually just wondering about the things that you're taught. They don't seem to add up. They don't measure up. And I'm a great proponent of doubt, actually, because I I became a Christian because of my doubts. I doubted Mm. some of the crazy things my church was telling me. (laughs) And I found that Jesus was so so unlike my church. People would uh, ask him a question. He'd give them a flat-out answer. He never made it easy. He never chased them down and said, well, well, you know, maybe we can negotiate. He just said, this is the truth, and you can choose to accept it or leave it. Well, occasionally, I'm invited to go to a, a college, secular college, university, and speak. And I say, uh, some of you may reject anything I say about my own faith, and I understand that. And, and actually, there's good precedent for that because I haven't found a single argument against God in the classic atheists, people like Voltaire, uh, Bertrand Russell, David Hume, or the modern ones, people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, uh, people like that, that is not already included in the Bible, Mm. in the book of Job, in Psalms, in Lamentations, Habakkuk. And I, for one, have respect for God who not only allows us to doubt, but gives us the words that we can use <laughs> in the mm-hmm. process. Richard Rohr uses different words than deconstruction. He talks about a three-stage process, ordering, disorder, and reorder. I tell parents, particularly of young people who are going through that disorder phase, give them time. They'll be parents themselves one day, perhaps, and they'll, they'll realize they need to have an order for their kids to grow up in. It'll have to be something they come up with. It can't be something that they just inherit from you. So I'm more relaxed about that, even though there's always a risk. They could just walk away from the faith, and that does happen, of course. Do you still consider yourself an evangelical? What is your relationship with that word and that movement? I have not given up the word evangelical. It mm. means good news. And when I go around the world, we we travel quite a bit. I've been to, I think, 85 countries. That's still a good word in most of the world. Mm. Here, it's it's uh, the opposite. It, and a lot of it has to do with social media and, and politics. And that's, you know, that's why we're in the middle of right now. When When I was growing up, Evangelicals were, or fundamentalists in my case, were separated by their behavior. But, you know, in my church, we didn't go bowling because they might be selling alcohol, beer at the bowling alley. We didn't go roller skating. It looked too much like dancing. We didn't swim together. They called, they called it mixed bathing back then. And everybody tried to be uh, more extreme. And they were kind of proud of it. The, the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate you know, be a peculiar people. Well, they were pretty peculiar as I reflect on it. And, and But that's how we defined ourselves. Politics really wasn't in the picture. Occasionally mm. it would come around. 
but nowhere near to the degree it is now, then it was a matter of getting saved so you could die and go to heaven. And this life is just something you have to grit your teeth and get through so you can get to the other side, to Beulah land. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. And now most people, those who are connected to the media, see evangelicals through that political lens. We all hear 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. So what is an evangelical? Well, it's, it's somebody who has politics like Donald Trump's. Mm -hmm. That's a very dangerous state to be in. I don't care what your politics is. Whenever the church and state get close together, the church always loses. In an interview with Bob Smetana at Religion News Service, you kind of referenced some of the things that people were afraid of mm. as evangelicals in, you know, as you were growing up. And some of those things that you mentioned, socialism, Catholic president, um, the racism yeah. that was apparent, like they're all still here. Right. You said that you felt like fear was sort of a fatal flaw of our movement. Why do you think that is the case? Why has fear been such a driving motivator for evangelicals? Why? I th it's probably goes back to that minority feeling. Uh, we feel like we're persecuted and mm. we are a peculiar people. We are set, a, set apart. And so the temptation is to build walls around ourselves, pull up the drawbridge. Culture is going a very different way than we may like it to be and that it has been. We've been... We've been spoiled in the U.S. We've had kind of a Christian consensus for some time. Mm -hmm. But when I go to other countries, there are very few of them. The U.S. is an outlier, encouraging and actually uh, legalizing freedom of religion. The church has been in exile for most of its history. I, I was on a Zoom call recently with uh, Francis Collins, head of the mm -hmm. National Institutes of mm -hmm. Health. He's, he's retiring Mm -hmm. I think about three days from today. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not around for long. And he, he was talking about how that fear expresses itself. And he says, every survey shows that some of the people who are most susceptible to these QAnon type conspiracy theories are evangelicals and, and how sad that is. And then he quoted some of the letters that he gets, you know, people see him as the antichrist, as this guy trying to kill them. He's trying to keep the country safe, you know, he's trying to make us healthy. And, and often it's the Christians, his own people, because hmm. I think he does call himself an evangelical who are attacking him so strongly. And we, we talked about the verse in First Peter. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. And if you have power without love. Well, that's kind of where we are now in the United States. You mm. know, they're, they're kind of power forces with not a lot of love. If you have love without power, you don't affect much change. You, you're just a nice guy, but you're not changing much. You really need that sound mind. And I think that's where evangelicals have fallen. Mm. But there are also lots and lots of ordinary people who are like sheep being led mm. into fear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some of these fundraising organizations feed on that fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It used to be communism, then it became the gay agenda. Now it's transgender, you know, whatever. There's always something new, Y2K. And 
it's just it's it's anti-christ uh god has not given us a spirit of fear it says and perfect love casts out fear so if we're defined by fear we certainly don't have perfect love we've got a long way to go hmm. I'm just thinking about the the evangelical church at large and sort of facing a reckoning right now in terms of really having to like having a lot of sins that maybe have been really old, but right now they're really in the public. Racism, sexual abuse, misogyny, this mm. grasping for political power. I think it's good it's being brought to the light, but I'm wondering as you think about the church at large in your opinion, <laughs> what might it really take for the church to reckon with, repent change and can it brother can it it would take um profound moral leadership i think mm. and i don't i don't see that right now and maybe maybe we ought to just concentrate more on the grassroots because mm -hmm. when i go to churches despite what you read in the news there's so much good going on there are people who are today visiting the prisoners and mm -hmm. running bible studies and working at pregnancy counseling centers and feeding the homeless and working in shelters. I mean, the sociologists tell us about half of, of that kind of volunteerism is, is faith-based. Mm -hmm. So maybe we ought to just concentrate on that and, and pray for the kind of moral leadership that we don't seem to have right now. For the work that you did in writing this memoir to take the time to speak with people who had hurt you, to speak with people who you had hurt, to try to, as you said, stitch together some disparate parts of your past and history. And just hearing your story, it's a good reminder that it's not, it's never too late to do that. You know, that, that work of reconciliation and making amends never, never ends. It's a lifelong calling. So thank you for modeling that well for us. I believe it's a hopeful message in my book even though there are a lot of wounds i'm trying to i try to be very honest about the church i'm not mm -hmm. a propagandist i'm not trying to talk you into something or change your belief i'm just telling you this is what i experienced i it's a narrative it's not a it's not an essay book it's not idea driven and i do have kind of an extreme story mm -hmm. that ended up really fueling everything i wrote afterwards which tends to be around suffering and around grace mm -hmm. when i've interviewed people in pain I came up with this kind of slogan that pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. Mm. What impresses me is when this terrible thing happens and yet you let God make good out of it. I, I think of God as a recycler that takes our wounds, takes our pains, takes our frustrations and somehow recycles them into, into something good. And I, I felt that very deeply as I was working on my own story. At the end, I had to say, I just don't have any regrets. Nothing got wasted. Hmm. And at the time, they were hard times, for sure. But I'm 72 years old, and I look back, and I, and I realize that the person I am now includes those things. God has redeemed the pains, made them new, and, and recycled them in a hopeful way. And I... I know there are a lot of people listening. We all have our own wounds, some from families, some through physical ailments, some through the church. And it's easy to just walk away and say, okay, they hurt me, I'll never go there again. Mm. With God's help, mind the good out of it. 
and get away from the toxicity. And then later you may be able, be able to go back and, and face into that as I've done. But mainly it's to allow God to find a way through, to find hope in the midst of darkness. That's, that's the Christian message. That's why we call Good Friday, Good Friday. <laughs> Didn't look very good at the time, but, but that is the Christian story at its heart. And not only can it be worked out in history, and we hope for that, but it can be worked out in individual lives too. Thank you so much for joining us and for ending on that note. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that was really great. And we really appreciate you taking time today and so close to the holidays to speak with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Philip. One thing that really stood out to me in what Philip shared is what he said about his brother forgiving their mom. Mm. And obviously that's a process, but, and it, for, you know, for him, it it's taken a long time. It's not mm-hmm. just like, it's something that happens within, but it really struck me that forgiveness is a way of letting go of the power that a person or a group of people or a movement have over you. Yeah, Forgiveness isn't just about doing what Jesus tells us to do. It's also about finding some healing for mm-hmm. ourselves and a way to move on into something more life-giving. Yeah. And I have noticed, you know, there's a lot of anger within the evangelical movement, if you will. In many ways, I think a lot of people still feel trapped in that definition of like what they used to be. They're ex-evangelicals, like defined against something mm-hmm. because it is so formative. And even the exit from it has created a life path that wouldn't have been theirs if if that pain had never happened to them. And so I think for me, for a lot of people with, you know, for a lot of people who have experienced this kind of deconstruction, um, who might call themselves ex-evangelical, I think there's a real question in front of us of how do you forgive a movement and how do you live in such a way that can still critique the movement and call out the harms while also being able to like move on and live your life? Those are good questions. I mean, I think back to our conversation with Audrey Assad from season one and you know, she, based on her own description, like she is definitely not a Christian anymore, but she seems to have found a path forward that is life-giving. It, I, I, there's not, I didn't get, obviously there, there's hurt there, but it seemed like there had been enough work and healing to kind of find a life-giving place beyond this painful past. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if we'll see more ex-evangelicals moving in that direction. F- finding a spiritual practice and identity that's not just defined over and against the thing that really hurts you. And I think Audrey yeah. is a good model of that. Yeah. And as long as we're like reflecting back on past episodes, you know, I think Dante Stewart is as well someone who who was part of a white evangelical spaces and has found life and spirituality within progressive black spaces. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, that is a process and there is legitimate hurt. And also there is still a place to, you know, criticize the movement and to call it out when it hurts people, even when you're no longer part of it. But that is maybe done from a place, I don't know, that's less immersed or that's less personally Mm -hmm. engaged and, and is a little bit more like able to look back from a place, I hope, of health and healing instead of just anger. 
Right. I also think it's worth noting here that just because someone critiques the church doesn't mean they don't love the church. Like there's a, there's this false binary Mm -hmm. that's like, if you love Jesus and you love the church, you will only say positive glowy things about the church and never speak of bad behavior or bad experiences. And what I observe from a lot of people who are critiquing the church right now is that it's actually coming from this deep love for the church and the church wanting to wanting to see the church live into the calling that has been given it, which is to be a reflection of the kingdom of God. And so we should, we should be speaking of the ways that it is failing to live up to that calling. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, Roxy, we did it. We wrapped another season, Saved by the City, two in the books. Who knows how many more to go? Well, before we end this episode and this season, we want to thank our faithful listeners for another wonderful season of Saved by the City. And we're not done, folks. We're already busy scheming up some exciting guests and topics for season three. We'll be back in early 2022. And before then, we'd love to hear from you. Ooh, it rhymed. Who should we talk to? What topics are you dying to hear us tackle? Here is one of my picks, Roxy. I really want to have Kristen Dume on to talk mm-hmm. about her next book, which has the perfect title called Live, Laugh, Love. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Kristen's publisher. It's it's about white women's white Christian women's consumerist culture. I am on board with this idea, Caitlin. I also have a dream guest for next season. I would love to talk to NK Jameson, who recently wrote a book, a fictional fantasy book about New York City, and embodies each of the boroughs in it in mm. one person. And I think it's great. So And what is it called? The City We Became. Mm. I'm intrigued. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We also get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty. And Roxy Stone. See See you next next year. year.